On August 7, 1881, a drunk man in Buffalo, New York, touched a generator at an electric company and dropped dead on the spot. A local steamboat engineer, dentist, and inventor, Alfred Southwick, heard the news and became fascinated by the man's instantaneous demise. He thought electricity might be the answer to an issue of growing importance at the time, carrying out capital punishment in a quick, humane way. He embarked on a series of experiments which involved electrocuting stray dogs he found around town, and his findings landed him a spot on the New York State Commission with a very long name. It was called the Commission to Investigate and Report the Most Humane and Practical Method of Carrying into Effect the Sentence of Death in Capital Cases. The Commission reviewed 34 methods of execution and narrowed it down to two, electrocution and lethal injection. The hypodermic needle was a new invention, but there was a concern that if it were used to kill people, the public would avoid medicine shots for their health. That left one choice. By June 1888, death by electricity was made the official method of execution in New York. From then until 1965, five men from in and around Syracuse, New York would be executed in the electric chair. This is the story of one of them, Giovanni John Fabri, age 31, an Italian immigrant who said fate had brought him to Syracuse. His life was one of struggle and unhappiness, but in 1928, his fortunes seemed to brighten when he got married and settled into town among friends. Then, on a Sunday afternoon, he and some men played a game akin to rock, paper, scissors. Someone claimed another cheated. Tempers rose, and by the end of the day, one of the men would be dead, and Fabri would find himself headed to a cell on death row. I'm Sonny Hernandez. This is The Condemned. Stories of five men with different paths who arrived at the same destination, the electric chair. Here is our next story. 31 years ago, John Fabri had been born on his parents' farm in the Abruzzo region of eastern Italy. He went to school until he was nine before his father had him removed so he could help on the farm. Fabri would often bristle when Americans snickered that he had gone to school until only the second grade, explaining that the Italian schools only had five grades. He was proud that he could read and write in his native language. When he was 24, he answered his brother's call to join him across the Atlantic Ocean in North America. He bid his parents goodbye, never to see them again. He landed in Montreal, only to learn that his brother had died just a few days before his arrival. Handicapped by his inability to speak French or English, Fabri struggled in his new home, toiling for two years as a laborer. He would say that fate brought him to Syracuse, New York. In 1928, he married Antoinette Seferella, a widow of a World War I veteran and a mother of four children, and may have found for the first time the happiness he had been looking for. The new family arrived in Syracuse's north side at 118 Lock Alley. His wife adored him, and he got along well with her family, and he even made some new friends. It is difficult to know if Louis Mangino, 36, of North Townsend Street, was one of John Fabri's new friends. They certainly knew each other before the tragic events of Sunday, November 25, 1928. 
when they spent nearly an entire afternoon together playing games, but how they felt about each other is hard to figure out. There were reports of a strange relationship between the two. A year before, the two had had an argument at Fabri's house over their lodges, their gangs, and women. Fabri was also certain that Mangina was paying too much attention to Mrs. Fabri. Mangina was married. His wife was named Emma. They had eight children in all. Emma had six children from a previous relationship. They had two together and were expecting a third. Mangino and Fabri were highly competitive, which may have foreshadowed what was to come. Mangino bragged of his ability to throw the knife the Syracuse Herald reported in 1928. He produced one and hurled it against the wall. The knife clattered to the floor, and while Fabri taunted, he tried it again. After three failures, Fabri took the knife and embedded it into the wall on the first try. Following that incident, there were frequent clashes between the men, Mrs. Fabri told the police. Nevertheless, when Louis Mangino bumped into John Fabri at around 2.30 p.m. one Sunday afternoon in 1928, Mangino invited him to tag along. They were accompanied by his brother-in-law, Fileno Di Barardini, and 14-year-old stepson, Anthony. Mangino sent his son off to a bowling alley while the three men ducked into a billiard parlor at 947 North Salina Street for a couple of games of pool. Inside, they met a friend of Febreze, Joseph Barone, who lived in a second-story apartment next door to the pool hall. After a couple of games, Barone invited them back to his place to play some cards. The four men were joined by two others and sat around the kitchen table at Barone's home while his two children played on the floor and Mrs. Barone cooked Sunday dinner. The game of cards was abandoned, and instead the men started playing Mora, a noisy ancient Italian game. In its most common form, players throw out a single hand extending between one to five fingers and call out their guess at what the sum of the fingers shown would be. If a player guesses correctly, the player is awarded a point. The first player to earn three points wins. The game can get loud as each player yells out their guesses. The men drank and played their game. All seemed to be having a grand time until Fabri and Mangino were drawn against each other. Maybe one of the players cheated, or maybe Fabri, who was said to be winning, took to taunting Mangino again, like he had with the knife throwing. Whatever the reason, the game of Mora in Joseph Barone's apartment came to an abrupt halt. The Syracuse Journal, dabbling in some of the ethnic stereotypes which often appeared in the period's newspapers, said that the hot blood of the Italian temperament surged. They struggled to their feet and glared at each other across the table. Envy and greed flared in their eyes. Fabri would later say that Mangino insultingly slapped him across the face, but the other participants said there were no blows thrown and no oaths given. The two were separated by Joseph Barone and another player. Mangino cooled down quickly after the dispute. He and his brother-in-law were told to leave the apartment and they began walking home. But Fabri simmered. Barone offered his pal a cup of coffee. Fabri refused it. He started to make the short walk to his home on Lock Alley. But Barone, possibly sensing that Fabri was about to do something rash, offered to drive Fabri home. Again, Fabri refused. I'd rather walk, he said, and left the apartment. Barone let him. It had been almost 10 minutes since Mangino left, and maybe he believed his friend had come down enough. It was going on 9 p.m., 
much of what happened next is fuzzy. What is known is that Fabri, Mangino, and Filano de Barardini all ended up in front of Mangino's home for one last confrontation. De Barardini said that he and Mangino were approached by Fabri, who pulled out a 32 caliber revolver and fired a single shot into Mangino's chest. Have you had enough? Fabri was said to have cried out. Fabri told a different story, though it was one that changed a bit. At first, he said he was in mortal fear of Mangino and said that he walked the long way home because he was sure that Mangino was lying in wait for him. But the long way took him directly past Mangino's home. Possibly thinking this story sounded unbelievable, Fabri would later testify that he had acted as a peacemaker and only wanted to put things right between him and Mangino. He caught up with the pair and offered his hand to De Baradini. Mangino responded by calling Fabri a little beast and slapping him across the face. Fabri was sure that Mangino then reached into a pocket for a gun. Fabri beat him to it and fired the fatal shot that tore through Mangino's right lung. No matter the truth, the result was the same. Louis Mangino was carried into his home by police and family and died within minutes. John Fabri panicked. He ran home. He grabbed some money and destroyed all the photos of himself he could find. Then he disappeared into the night. Syracuse police believed Fabri might try to go back to Canada. There were reports he was seen in Rochester. Fabri, though, had walked to Liverpool, New York, and hid out in the swamps around nearby Onondaga Lake. Two days after the shooting, on November 27th, weary and hungry after two nights outside running from the law, he appeared at the home of lawyer Robert Murray. He had been hiding inside a Syracuse movie theater that day, and after watching the same film four times consecutively, decided to turn himself in. After literally falling through the lawyer's front door, Fabri announced, I want to give myself up. He was charged with first-degree murder the next day. Fabri's trial began on January 28, 1929. The prosecution argued that the murder of Louis Mangino was premeditated and argued for a first-degree murder charge, carrying with it the death penalty. Lawyer Robert Murray said that Fabri had acted in self-defense. It took several days to select a jury, which included two interesting members. One juror, Arthur Poyle, had already been on a jury of a capital case. He had voted in favor of the execution of Antonio Viandante for the murder of his wife and another man. The prosecution was happy to have him for another death penalty case. Oddly, so was the defense. Poyle had had business dealing with Robert Murray's father, a horse trader. The Syracuse Journal would nickname Poyle the Death Juror. Also seated was Melville Clark, the celebrated Syracuse harpist, who had played at the White House before European royalty. When the panel retires for the night, they are soothed and entertained by this artist, the journal wrote. Mrs. Fabri, who had not seen her husband since the night of the murder, sat through the jury selection and the entire trial deeply interested in the proceedings. She would pat her husband's hand and offer encouragement during recesses. Emma Mangino was also there, dressed in black mourning clothes. Fabri took the stand in his own defense on February 2nd. He had tried to portray an image of calm during the opening days of the trial, but had begun to look more and more haggard. His hair was disheveled. He clasped and unclasped his hands. Assistant District Attorney William Martin hammered away at Fabri, who relied on an interpreter throughout the trial. A dramatic moment came when Martin asked Fabri to demonstrate how he fired the fatal shot. 
Fabrice stood up with the eyes of everyone in the courtroom upon him. Then he reached for his pocket and, whipping a mythical gun from it, cocked his thumb and forefinger and pointed it at the jury, the journal noted. So real was the demonstration that several jurors jumped in their seats. Martin then pounded away at Fabrice's claim that he had hoped to avoid Mangino. Then, and in order to avoid Mangino, you went up Union Place and directly toward Mangino's home, didn't you? Martin asked sarcastically. When Fabri responded that he went that way to avoid Mangino, Martin asked why he didn't turn around when he saw the two men standing in front of Mangino's home. Because I wanted to go up to him and shake hands and be friends, Fabri responded. He then claimed to have only wanted to wound Mangino. I shot for his arm. I didn't want to kill him. Fabri was dealt a further blow when the defense could not prove that Mangino ever had a gun. The jury convicted Fabri in 83 minutes. He understood little English, but he knew what the jury had decided before he needed the interpreter. Eyes popping, he half rose from his chair, but his knees wobbled and he sank back again. Then he dropped his head in his hands and wept unrestrainedly, the journal said. From the back of the room, Mrs. Fabri screamed in agony and rushed toward her husband and embraced him before being led out of the room. A day later, John Fabri sat in the murderer's cage in front of reporters. A year before, almost to the day, he had gotten married in the very same building, no less than 20 paces from where he had heard the jury deliver its verdict. His coat was off, his elbows rested upon his knees, and he rested his chin in the cup of his hands. He peered into the distance, lost in thought. He brushed his hands over his eyes. A pitiful gesture, for it seemed to wipe out something horrid and unreal, a Syracuse reporter wrote. He continued, Events, tragic, unbelievable ones for Fabri, have traversed themselves quickly in that short twelve months. Through the ecstasy of the bridegroom and the sordid horror of that night last November, when he stood over Louis Mangino with a smoking pistol in his hand, John Fabri's life had tumbled about his ears. Fabri answered all the questions that reporters asked. Do you think justice has been served, Fabri? I don't know. I couldn't understand. If the judge says go to the chair, I go. On February 7, 1929, Judge William Barnum did just that. I sentence you to die in the electric chair the week of March 17th, so help you God, Barnum ordered. Fabri spent the next six days in a Syracuse prison before being transferred to Sing Sing, where he would be executed, pending an appeal. He spent his time talking to his attorneys and playing cards with Deputy Sheriff Michael Plano, who could speak Italian. They played the game Pedro, made famous in American mining camps. Fabri, his competitive streak still intact, usually won. Mrs. Fabri visited every day, offering her husband encouragement and bringing him a pack of cigarettes. He never saw his stepchildren. He was described as downcast in the mornings, but his wife's visits usually brightened his spirits. If he is resigned to death, then he is the bravest man I ever saw, but I think he is hoping against hope, jailer Clifford Black said. A new attorney was brought in to save John Fabri from the electric chair. Syracuse lawyer Richard Shanahan had a reputation for saving the condemned, and he was hired with the hope of getting Fabri a new trial. Shanahan argued that witnesses for the prosecution were never questioned about the amount of wine John Fabri had consumed that night at Joseph Barone's apartment. Shanahan's contention was that if it had been shown that Fabri was drinking heavily and in an intoxicated condition, the jury could have drawn the conclusion that Fabri's mind was too befogged to have planned a murder. 
and might have found him guilty of only manslaughter. His long-shot appeal was denied on July 11, 1929. Fabri's wife, Antoinette, did not give up and did all she could to save her husband. From the day of her husband's sentencing, she worked day and night, raising money from Italian groups and organizations to continue the fight, even after her neighbors complained to the police that she was neglecting her children to work on her husband's behalf. With his last appeals vanquished, Fabri's execution was scheduled for the week of August 6, 1929. His last hope was New York State Governor's Franklin Roosevelt. On August 27th, Roosevelt heard arguments from both sides. A source from inside Roosevelt's office thought FDR was at first sympathetic to Fabri's case, believing that maybe Fabri, his mind clouded by alcohol, did not really know what he was doing and that the murder was not premeditated. But this was squashed by Assistant DA William Martin, who told Roosevelt that more than 10 minutes had passed from the moment of the argument and the shooting. John Fabri knew what he was doing, Martin argued. He hunted down Louis Mangino and shot him in cold blood. Roosevelt left the Capitol for Syracuse to take part at Governor's Day at the New York State Fair. Friends of Fabri stalked the governor while he toured the fairgrounds, and Mrs. Fabri tried in vain to get an audience with him inside his Onondaga hotel room. He did not say a word about the Fabri case. The execution would proceed. At about 11 p.m. on Thursday, August 29, 1929, a Sing Sing prison cell door swung open and John Fabri took his final steps. Walking with a prayer on his lips, his eyes fixed on the little green door, Fabri entered the death chamber. Fabri was described as calm throughout his final day. He had been called a model prisoner by Chief Warden Lewis Laws and the bravest man to ever make the walk to the electric chair by one of his jailers. He had refused a special last meal, but ate heartily the regular prison fare offered to him hours before his execution. In his final hours, he remained silent and refused to speak to the guards. He made the final walk with Father John McCaffrey, who prayed with Fabri. The slayer almost hurried to the electric chair and sat down, the Syracuse Journal wrote. Executing a person in an electric chair was a brutal event. Supreme Court Justice William Brennan wrote in 1985, The force of the electrical current is so powerful that the prisoner's eyeballs sometimes pop out. The body turns bright red as its temperature rises and the prisoner's flesh swells and his skin stretches to the point of breaking. Sometimes the prisoner catches on fire. Quickly, the straps were adjusted. Just before the black death cap was slipped over his head, Fabri sighed deeply, looked with mute appeal at his executioners, and then braced himself for the ordeal. The first shock was sent at 11.03. A shudder went through his frame, and then the current was applied again. After this, his body went limp. At the same time in Syracuse, the lights were on in two small houses separated by less than two city blocks. In one, Emma Mangino cared for a newborn son born earlier that summer. The whole house is transfigured with joy from the dark place of sorrow it has been these many months. It has now become a spot of happy voices and laughing lips, a Syracuse reporter wrote. Emma named her newborn son Louis after her slain husband. Emma told the Syracuse Journal, I feel that my husband lives again in my baby. It helps me to get along without him. This is still Louis Mangino's house, and Louis Mangino still lives here. The scene was sadder at John Fabri's former home. Friends had gathered to offer Antoinette Fabri solace. 
Huddled around her were her four children who added their wails to their mother's silent weeping. They did not know what they were crying about. They cried because their mother did. John Fabry's body was returned to his wife and is buried in Assumption Cemetery on the north side of Syracuse. This concludes the story of John Fabry. Next time on The Condemned, we'll hear the story of Franklin Jenner, a vagabond lumberjack and farmhand who was desperate for a new life, but his greed for money led him down a dark path. The Condemned is hosted by Sonny Hernandez and Josh McDonald. Stories written by Jonathan Croyle and Steve Carlick with editing assistance by Sonia Duntley. Recorded and produced by Katrina Tullick. Thank you for listening to The Condemned. Want more? Check out Syracuse.com condemned to see historical images, videos, and additional stories connected to the electric chair. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your friends and rate and review our series as it helps new listeners find us. We really appreciate it. This is a Syracuse.com production.